Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I am pleased to be joined by the wickedly talented, one and only, Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. How about that John Travolta intro for you? <laughs> Adele Dazim rides again. <laughs> So with that, Annika, would you like to tell us what's going to be in the spotlight this week? We are diving into Wicked, the 2003 Broadway sensation written by Stephen Schwartz, book by Winnie Holtzman, based on a Gregory Maguire novel, uh, which is in turn based on an L. Frank Baum novel. Wicked! Wicked! Cut that part. No, good deed. I love it. I love it. Even revisiting it, I was ready to be cynical Cindy and like really not be into it. And I I was reading it and I was like, I love this show. I do. <laughs> That's great. I admire this show, but I don't say, I wouldn't say I love it. You know, I mean, it's also, I think, clearly for a certain generation. Yeah, I was a little old for it, I think. It's right in the pocket of when I was covering Broadway and it was a formative formative experience for me to see the show but like have discovered it even before then and like begged to go see it when it um, went on tour so yeah well michael i think it's everyone's favorite time which is when we force you to say the entire plot of a show in 60 seconds hudson's Florex doesn't matter hudson's Florex doesn't matter hudson's Florex doesn't matter hudson's Florex doesn't matter so let me get my timer up I genuinely actually forgot this was a segment until like uh, 10 minutes ago, so. Okay, I have the timer. I'm turning on the sound. Stop. And go. So Wicked is about um, Elphaba, who was born green um, after what we find out later is the wizard has an affair with her mom and gives her green elixir, but we don't know that until the very, very end. Uh, And she goes to uh, Shiz, uh, where she uh, inadvertently rooms with Galinda, who is a preppy popular girl. Um, and Elphaba shows that she has magical powers. She's sent away to Shiz to take her care of, of her um, sister in a wheelchair, Nessa Rose. Um, but she shows she has magical powers and Madame Morrible's like, hey, you're special. I'm going to teach you sorcery. And Glinda's like, oh, I want to learn sorcery. Um, and they have this like quibble, quibble, fight, fight, fight. Um, Glinda kind of terrorizes her. But through the terror, um, they actually end up being friends because Glinda does something nice for Nessa Rose. And that's when they become besties and they start starting sorcery together. Uh, and then that's they go- Oh my god. I and mean, then they go to uh, the Emerald City and the wi- the wizard's actually bad and there's a whole monkey subplot and uh, Fiero. Oh my god. The end. <laughs> that was horrific. <laughs> I thought I did so much better. <laughs> I think the fact that you love this show makes it hard because you're trying to get all this stuff in there. But Wow, that was terrible. Okay, so there is this subplot that animals are trying to be silenced and Alphaba is not cool with that. So they go to the Emerald City because the wizard has heard she has amazing powers and so she gets an audience with the wizard and Glenda goes with her and they discover while they're there that the wizard is not who he claims to be and he tricks Alphaba into giving monkeys wings and Alphaba says, no, I'm going to defy gravity and be anti the wizard and Glenda decides not to do that and instead kind of goes along with the wizard and that's all interspersed with a love triangle with Fiero the haughty frat boy of shiz who starts dating Glinda but has feelings for Elphaba and you've got Bach who's got a crush on Glinda but ends up with Nessa Rose at Glinda's suggestion so that's the basic storyline I I really thought I was going to do better than I did (laughs) 
Well, there's surprisingly a lot in this show. There's a there's a bunch to get through, so you did pretty well. And so that brings us to why God why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea of the show and what's the driving force of the narrative. Uh, what's the idea that connects all of the plots, characters, things. And I, for one, think that the easiest way to sum up this show is a one word, and that's perception. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant way to, to sum it up. I think this is a show that has a lot of messages it wants to be conveying. And I, I, I think it, it, the show would think that it's about female friendship, which is sort of a guiding principle. But I agree that actually the, the real spine of the show and the real driving force of it is, as you say, perception. I think that's a brilliant one. Yeah, I mean, and the, the relationship between Elba and Glenda is certainly the heart of the show and something they've discovered through the development process, but I I don't, I think it's hard to say that that's a driving force of the show. Yeah. It really is the unexpected byproduct of a yes. story where perception is the central question. Yeah, it's also very much a growing up story, which so many shows are, so many pieces of art are. It's really about finding who you are, embracing who you are, making difficult choices and becoming your sort of fully formed self. So that's there too. And with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Wicked. We can never go back to before. So obviously the Ur source material for Wicked is the wonderful Wizard of Oz, the famous, wonderful text that was written by L. Frank Baum in 1900. And L. Frank Baum was a, was a traveling salesman, actually. And while he was on the road, he would make up these stories. And then he would come home and tell his family about these sort of strange, fantastical fairy tales that he had made up. And so his mother-in-law actually said, you have to start writing these down. And he did, and he became successful as a children's book author, basically, only a few years before writing this book. But then he wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and it just was a massive success. So that is sort of the foundational text that many years down the line would become Wicked the Musical. But what I found really interesting when I was looking this up was that only three years after The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was written in 1900, a theatrical version of The Wizard of Oz opened on Broadway. And it was also a huge hit. It was a bit different. L. Frank Baum did write the basic script of it, but it was actually kind of a vaudeville variety show thing. It wasn't what we would consider a musical today. But I thought that was so interesting that the theatrical history of The Wizard of Oz actually was so early in its, in its story. Yeah, The Wizard of Oz is one of those stories, kind of like some of Charles Dickens' books in, in the UK. And one of those stories that immediately kind of captured the imagination of the country and immediately became something that was right for adaptation, whether that was early film, vaudeville, you know, whatever. It, people really latched onto the story from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. and understandably, I mean, it's such a great story and it's, it is so vivid in terms of its descriptions of this whole fantasy realm, I'm not surprised. But also, I mean, three years between the publication of a book in 1900 and it being on Broadway, I was like, that's a fast turnaround now, that's a fast turnaround then. So, fade out, fade in. In 1939, the film version of The Wizard of Oz opens, which obviously, I mean, is a maybe the best movie ever made in america it's the huge classic i don't even i don't even need to say anything about this do i it's like everybody knows this it's huge i think it's literally ingrained to the psyche of our entire country yeah yeah 
whether you like it or not, you know a lot about it, whether you realize it or not. Yep, absolutely. And and the movie actually changes around some of the details of the book in a way that have the, has then overshadowed the details in the book, the actual true details. But so the movie almost in some ways eclipsed the book in terms of fame and iconicness. And then it was still adapted a million more times. The most notable theatrical version that I want to highlight is in 1974. There's another adaptation of it called The Wiz by Charlie Smalls and William F. Brown, among others. There's a few different songwriters and lyricists, uh, which was a sort of black retelling of The Wizard of Oz set in a kind of contemporary city. They made a movie of it. They really kind of took the heart of the story and set it in a different world. Very different sound. Really fantastic. I just wanted to get that in there because I love The Wiz and I just wanted to mention that this, when you have a story that is this foundational in terms of like this mythology, this folklore, that it can really be dropped into different settings, which a million people have done. And The Wiz is a really good example of that. So it's on stage again. And then in September of 1995, the author Gregory Maguire, who is like L. Frank Baum, primarily a children's book writer, writes a novel called Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which sort of reimagines the life of the Wicked Witch. It's not really a reimagination so much as it is an actual like diving into the life of the Wicked Witch of the West because obviously in the original novel there isn't a ton about who she is separate from the story and some of the other characters from the Wizard of Oz he was living in London at the time and was partially inspired by how the British press were vilifying Saddam Hussein in order to justify the military action against Iraq and he kind of thought of how interesting that is when the world tries to make a villain in order to get away with things, basically. They really, not that Saddam Hussein was a, a good person, but once you have a common enemy, you can really get away with everything. And he thought about that in conjunction with the Wizard of Oz story and the, and the Wicked Witch and thought that would be a really great place to go. So he wrote this novel. He names the protagonist Elphaba, which is a nod to L. Frank Baum. L. Frank Baum, Elphaba. And it becomes a, a hit. It kind of becomes a success. Which is funny only because L. Frank Baum came up with the name Oz because of his file cabinets, which were A through N and O through Z. So I think it's a lovely kind of nod to L. Frank Baum himself. It is. It is a really great little, it's a lovely little Easter egg in there. So then Stephen Schwartz, the composer of many things, Godspell, lots of different shows, was on a snorkeling trip with some friends in 1996, a year after this book was published. And one of them was reading Wicked and said, this is a great book, I'm really enjoying it. So Stephen Schwartz read it and loved it and immediately tried to get the rights. Although he found out that they were held by Demi Moore's production company and the producer Mark Platt at Universal with the intention of making a, a film. And they were actually kind of underway with the making of this film. I think they were waiting for the second draft of the screenplay. So it was really like a thing that was happening. And Stephen Schwartz thought, oh, that's a bummer. But still he had this dream that he could make it into a musical at some point. And separately, Winnie Holtzman, who is a writer primarily of television shows, she had created My So-Called Life as well as 30 something had seen the book and thought it was a great idea. And she also looked into the rights, but got the same answer, which was that the movie was already underway. The rights were held up. So Stephen Schwartz and Winnie Holtzman, both of whom wanted to make this musical, both of whom were thwarted in this attempt, had this dream together that they could do this musical, but thought that it was not a happening thing. Yeah, so Stephen actually goes to Mark Platt and tries to convince him that it should be a Broadway musical before it's a movie. And much to his surprise, Platt agreed. 
And even though they continued to develop the screenplay, he kept feeling the story was missing something. And this conversation with Schwartz helped him realize it was music. So Schwartz then went to McGuire to convince him that it should be a musical as Platt continued to develop it as a movie for a little while. And even though McGuire was initially skeptical, Schwartz won him over when he said that you've written a story with a lot of strong emotion and it can stand being sung directly to an audience. Then he described how the play might open with the first couple lines of the lyrics from No One Wants to Lick It and he won McGuire over right away. And so Holtzman, Schwartz, and Platt set about pounding out the story of their adaptation all on note cards in Platt's office in Los Angeles. They held an initial table reading in Los Angeles in the spring of 2000, where they realized the show was way too long, as most shows are at that point in development, and went back and made some drastic cuts. So for their next reading uh, that had a two-week rehearsal process in early fall of 2000, also in Los Angeles, Schwartz called the recent Tony-winning actress Kristen Chenoweth, who he had long thought would be perfect for the then-supporting role of Galinda. She was in L.A. doing her short-lived sitcom Kristen and sort of reluctantly said yes, but that when she got the material for the first time and read through it, she said, oh, I have to do this. Uh, and in the room, they also had an L.A. musical theater actress by the name of Stephanie J. Block to take on the role of Elphaba, who ended up doing a substantial portion of the Los Angeles development of the show, which this is interestingly one of those shows that has a lot of development in Los Angeles because uh, Universal as a movie studio was pretty heavily involved with producing the show. Uh, but with this edition of Kristen Chenoweth, the authors were really taken with her and ended up building out the role to suit her skills and personality, really making it into the co-leading role that we know of today. And they were particularly taken with the chemistry between Chenoweth and Block, and that became the new foundation of the show. Yeah, it's so interesting. In the original book, which is really centered around Alphaba, Glinda is the lesser part as she was originally in this show. And it's so funny to me that they started out with Alphaba distinctly the leading role and Glinda this secondary character. And then because Kristen Chenoweth was so great, they built up the character of Glinda almost too much because the, the reviews in after their out-of-town tryouts were saying that Elphaba wasn't nearly interesting enough or developed enough. So it actually sort of, sometimes this happens in a show when you're developing, you can kind of overcorrect, where it's you're making one character more prominent and then what happens is the balance is off and the other character falls by the wayside. So it's just kind of an interesting thing that, that happened that took them a long time to find the balance between those two characters. So they did a few more readings out in Los Angeles in early 2001. That's when Platt invited the Broadway producer David Stone to come check out the work. Since Platt didn't have a ton of experience producing on Broadway, he felt it was important to have someone who knew the ropes. Uh, and Stone was particularly moved by the show and joined the producing team. And at his suggestion, they hired Joe Mantello, known both for his acting work, uh, particularly in Angels in America, and more recently at the time as a director, to help guide the team as they began to put the show on its feet. And as they continued to shape the narrative and rewrite portions of the script, the next big step was a planned development workshop in New York in December of 2001. A few months prior, they had auditions for the role of Alphaba, and actually the first person they saw was Adina Menzel, who at that point, most famous, originating the role of Maureen in Rent. She actually came to her audition with a lot of green eyeshadow, lipstick, and blush on as a nod to the character, and the team fell in love with her, which is funny because like, if I were in that audition room, I'd be like, girl, trying a little too hard, but <laughs> they loved it. 
Yeah, I think I think a little green eyeshadow is a nice nod, but like green blush sounds horrifying. And, and green she lipstick. recalls that it was just eyeshadow, but everyone else claims that it was lipstick and blush too, which I, I'm inclined to believe everyone else. So when they came, when she came back for her second audition, she actually cracked on some of the high notes in Defying Gravity and let slip a few expletives. But they all loved her edge, and she and knew she could pull off the role. So they did an additional year and a half of readings and workshops. And one of the big developments during this period of the show was that it used to begin with the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Woodsman hawking souvenirs in the aisles of the audience before Madame Morrible announced the Wicked Witch was dead and brought them up on stage along with Dorothy and the Scarecrow, who sang No One Mourns the Wicked as a solo. This evolved during this time into Glinda descending in her bubble and confirming the news of the witch's death and subsequently singing the song. The show went ahead and played its out-of-town triad at the Curran Theater in San Francisco, and the creative team describes the time as invaluable, but that to many people, the changes that they made would be hardly noticeable, but made a big difference for them. It's important to note that they really spent a lot of time trying to inject some humor, fire, and irony into Elphaba. They found that audiences were really taken to Glinda because of how funny she was, and they needed to get audiences to fall in love with Elphaba just as much. The other big change was before they premiered in San Francisco, they hadn't quite landed on a song they felt properly introduced Fiero, and particularly their new addition to the cast, Norbert Leo Butts, a fellow Webster Conservatory graduate, whoop, uh, Schwartz uh, took a song that had been called Which Way is the Party and changed to a more sting-like approach called Dancing Through Life, which he says the choreographer, Wayne Salento, felt would be the best stage from a dance perspective. They found from the get-go that audiences seemed to really embrace the show, despite some of its bumps as they continued to iron out details. Responses grew stronger and stronger as the weeks went on, but the initial critical reactions were not so kind with Dennis Harvey of Variety writing, quote, ding dong, the witch's prognosis is uncertain at this stage, uh, which I thought was pretty snarky and funny. Um, but the team soldiered on and continued to refine the material. So after the San Francisco run, they very smartly built in three months to work on the show. They were not gonna transfer even if it was a super hit immediately. They wanted to have a few months to take what they had learned from the San Francisco run and really finesse the book, finesse the music, make some changes, which they did. So then after those three months, they moved to Broadway, started rehearsal in New York and opened officially on Broadway on October 30th of 2003, which I love because it's the day before Halloween, obviously. So they get that kind of witchy Halloween vibe in there. And again, it got mixed reviews, more positive than, than San Francisco, but not across the board raves. But audiences really responded right off the bat. And that year it was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, but it only won three of them and didn't win any of the major best musical awards, best book or best score, because it was the same year as Avenue Q. And Avenue Q really came from behind as the little show that could and really did a creative sweep of the Tonys that year. But it didn't really matter because audiences found it and they fell madly in love with it and it became a real mega hit of the kind that you see pretty rarely. So currently, I mean, obviously currently nothing's running on Broadway, but currently it's the fifth longest running show on Broadway. And I think it's probably going to be poised to take over at least one 
step higher on that list. It's really no, showing no sign of stopping at any point. And of course, with every Broadway show that's this much of a hit, there was a London production, there's an Australian production, there's tours, there's a Japanese production, there's all sorts of international productions that have happened subsequent to this original production. It's really become a phenomenon. It's the first example in the 21st century of the kind of mega musical that we talked about with Les Mis and that has, it is the, it is the first example of that in the 21st century and it's absolutely still going strong. It's one of the reasons there's, there have been so many rumors of a movie adaptation of Wicked and it has yet to come to fruition because they don't really need for it to happen because they're doing so well at the box office. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside popular. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So we are going to dive into one of my favorite songs from the Wicked score, the song Popular, which is Glinda's big number in the first act. One of the most popular, <laughs> ironically, or appropriately, songs in the show. And um, it's a great, I think it's great. And part of the reason that I wanted to do it is because actually when I was reading uh, The Grimmery, which is the official book that they've released about the making of the musical Wicked, Stephen Schwartz talks about popular and basically says that it's, it's empty calories. He wanted it to be as frothy and empty and meaningless as possible. That there's basically, he says, there's no depth to it at all. And I think he's wrong. I think he's underselling this song. I think it actually tells you a lot about who Glinda is and who she's on her way to becoming. So let's dive in. So I'm going to listen to, obviously, the original cast recording, which is the one that we have. If you want to go listen to the whole song, I would say go listen to it now and then come on back. We're going to play chunks of it. I'm not going to do the whole song. I'm going to do most of the song, but then there's like a little almost reprise at the end of it that I'm going to ignore. So go listen to Popular and come on back. Ah, oh, wasn't that fun? Or if you didn't listen to it, oh, isn't it going to be fun? Um, so basically, this happens at a part in the show when Glinda is popular and rich and blonde and cute, and she has lots of friends immediately as soon as she gets to school. And Elphaba is the opposite of this, obviously. She's shunned, she's weird, she's got this green skin, she has no interest in really befriending anybody, and nobody really has any interest in being her friend, it seems. She's at the bottom of the social ladder. Glinda is definitely at the top. And they've become roommates through a sort of accident. And that means that they have grown to truly, truly hate each other. So this song happens after Glinda has decided to pull a prank on Elphaba by giving her a hat that she thinks is completely hideous. And Elphaba thinks that this is a nice thing that Glinda has done for her. And so she wears the hat to the big dance. And it's immediately made clear to her that this hat is hideous and she's embarrassed herself. But Glinda has found out that Elphaba, thinking that Glinda has done this nice thing for her, has done a nice thing for Glinda, which is to persuade Madame Morrible to let Glinda be a part of the sorcery class that previously was only Elphaba. So when Elphaba begins to dance by herself in this weird way in the middle of the dance, kind of defying everybody's mockery, right? That she could have just run away and been super humiliated and then life would have continued and she would have been even less popular. She decides to kind of defy everybody and take a stance and pretend like she's totally okay being this unusual person in this hideous hat. And Glinda goes and dances with her and it becomes very clear by Glinda doing that that they are that she has kind of rescued Elphaba, that she has given her benediction to Elphaba being a cooler person or someone who isn't a social outcast. 
So this song happens right after that, when the dance has happened and they're now home, and they've decided that they're going to be friends. This has made them friends. So let's dive in. And this is obviously Kristen Chenoweth, the great Glinda. Oh, and one other thing I should say too, at this point, the character's name is Galinda, and then she, of course, changes it later. I'm just going to say Glinda. It's just, you know, just easier. Elfie, now that we're friends, I've decided to make you my new project. You really don't have to do that. I know. That's what makes me so nice. Whenever I see someone less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who isn't? Less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. Okay, so already we have a lot. Um, we have that little dialogue in the front, which is just kind of setting it up. But what I love is that first little note before she sings the song, there's this kind of note that announces the song is going to happen. And then there's a pause before she starts. It's as though Glinda basically comes with her own little built-in introduction, her entrance music. And then she has a little pause so that everybody is paying attention, right? Glinda's very used to being the person that everybody listens to. So she just wants to make sure that you're with her, right? She's going to have a little note that's announcing she's about to sing, and then she's going to give you a minute so that you can be in the proper place to receive what she's going to sing, which is kind of her attitude for this entire song a little bit, right? She's going to do this great benediction unto Elphabush, this great thing for her. And then, of course, we jump into this whenever I see someone less fortunate than I. And we've got this music that's that's got a little bit of of sadness to it, serious to it. It's it's a statement, an earnest in a very Glinda way, right? It feels like she's performing the seriousness. And, you know, someone less fortunate than I, and usually that obviously would mean in terms of poverty or health or something like that. But for here, she means it in terms of just purely social situation. And then, of course, she can't help but throw in the acknowledgement that most people are less fortunate than her, which she presents, which is funny because, again, it's such an an ego statement but she it doesn't sound like she's saying that as a brag it sounds like she's kind of saying that as an acknowledgement like it would be wrong not to acknowledge that the obvious thing which is that most people are less fortunate than her she's very fortunate you know she's at the top here and of course she just doesn't let she doesn't give that statement any air so there's no chance she's not placing that as though it's something that we have to think about and consider she's just brushing past it which is adding to that sense that like something she has to acknowledge but just a jumping off point um from which she hops into this my tender heart tends to start to bleed which has this kind of like hoppy melody down and of course a bleeding heart right it's the most emotional thing it's the most sensitive thing if somebody's less fortunate her her tender heart tends to start to bleed and this hoppy little music, it's both pulling down like she's so sad, but it's also like skipping down a little bit. There's something about that melody that, that just skips from note to note on the way down, or maybe like she's waving a wand. There's both something childlike about it and immensely self-serious. And it's, of course, funny for someone to talk about themselves in almost the third person like this. Truly good people don't usually go around talking about how good they are. And certainly people don't usually say, well, my tender heart, you know, um, especially for someone like Glinda, who's who's talking about this. All of this is a little bit insulting to Elphaba, who obviously is one of the less fortunate, right? Um, there's very little awareness of who she's singing to here. And then, of course, there's a the great little, after she says this, there's the little harpsichord 
notes following her like she's own like she's got her own little musical punctuation and it sounds vaguely churchy because it's that harpsichord kind of baroque feeling like maybe she's giving a sermon here this is wise words that fall from her lips because she's so special and you should always listen to what she's saying and when someone needs a makeover i simply have to take over i know i know exactly what they need and then we get the continuation of this right so we're getting a little bit into the real glinda here she's moving away from that kind of performative i'm such a good person it makes me so sad to see someone suffering and we're talking about a makeover so it's getting a little faster a little more bubbly and then she reveals herself on i know i know exactly what they need right she's moving from this kind of like oh i'm so sweet and sensitive to who she really is, which is a lot more focused and a lot more savvy, I think. Because here we have this very forceful statement about, I know, I know exactly what they need. She knows better and she just wants to be clear that she knows this and everyone else should know this too. And also that this is all really about her to a large degree, which it is at this point. And even in your case, Though it's the toughest case I've yet to face Don't worry, I'm determined to succeed Follow my lead, and yes, indeed And so here we've got this great little moment where uh, there's a pause after even in your case which I would suspect was something that happened probably in rehearsal. This is the kind of thing that often will happen when you have a, a really great comedian um, you can hear the moment, the beat of Glinda sizing up the task at hand and realizing how hard it's going to be. Because you could go right through that, even in your case, though it's the toughest case I've yet to face. You know, she could just, that would be a fun line on its own. But stopping right after, even in your case, pause, lets us see that moment of like assessment that Glinda's doing right there. And then following it by, though it's the toughest case I've yet to face, is almost coming out of that little moment. Like, okay, this is what we've got. All right, but I'm ready. And she moves into this almost like explorer territory, right? Toughest gets really high. There's a, well, it doesn't get really high, but it's much higher than the rest of it there to show how, just how distance it is. It feels like a mountain, right? It's the toughest case I've yet to face, but don't worry, I'm determined to succeed, right? Now it starts to sound like she's, she's heading off into this wild frontier and she might not make it back alive but she's she's determined this is gonna she's gonna do this right you will be popular you're gonna be popular i'll teach you the proper poise when you talk to boys little ways to flirt and flounce Ooh, i'll show you what shoes to wear how to fix your hair everything that really counts to be so now we've gotten into the the fun of it. Um, I love the you will be popular. Even this little chunk has a lot to it. Pulling it down with that wind up on you will be and each going further, dropping a little bit further. It it goes back into that very kind of solemn moment of this is serious, this is happening, and it also it feels like it's just giving a great entrance to whatever word is going to come next, right? She's kind of pulling the slingshot down and whatever word is going to be lined up for it is going to be a big hefty word, right? It's going to be massive. It's 
she's built the pedestal. She's about to put the word on it. And then of course it's popular, which she says with a little light, right? But for Glinda, this is the most serious word you can imagine. And we're going to see by the end of this song that actually this is kind of the most serious word that you can imagine. But here the contrast is really funny because you will be, are each given such magnitude and then popular is the answer, which we think of as very superficial and something really only relevant when you're in school, right? It could be it could be powerful. You could be magnificent. You know, any of these big lofty words, but it's popular. And she makes sure we hear it. And then, of course, with this little like yodel in popular, the extra syllable, it kind of gives it another, a great little spin. It's like she's taking the world, word itself and spinning it around a little bit to look at it like it's a little jewel, right? Popular. It's just spinning it and making sure that we, we are hearing all parts of the word, even an extra part of the word that doesn't normally exist there. And then she's moving into the list of things that you need to do or be in order to be popular. And they all have a similar melody, so none of them are really differentiated. We're not really supposed to hear each one of these and register each one separately. It's just a list of things. Uh, fix your hair, how to flirt, it's just a checklist of things. Because they don't have specific meaning individually, we don't get the sense that any of them is very important. And then of course she contrasts that with everything that really counts, which totally just undercuts that whole thing, right? We're thinking of like, okay, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. These are all kind of silly things. And then she says everything that really counts, right? To her, this does count immensely. It is everything that really counts. So it's both totally true and totally not true. Because when you're in school, this does really matter. All of this stuff really matters to Elphaba. At this moment, this does kind of really matter. It does suck to be really unpopular as she is. But at the same time, you know, it's popularity at school. Is that that important? Well, we'll find out. Popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with our right cohorts. You'll be good at sports. Know the slang you've got to know. So let's start, because you've got an awfully long way to go. Don't be offended by my frank analysis. Think of it as personality dialysis. Now that I've chosen to become a policist or an advisor, there's nobody wiser. All right, so and then we got a, a more of a checklist there. Um, and then we move into this other section where she's acknowledging for the first time that this process might not be the most fun for Alphaba because having someone tell you that you are woefully pathetic and desperately unpopular and desperately in need of all of these things is not a great thing to hear. But she's telling Alphaba this in a very Glinda way. It's sort of nice. It's a nice thing to kind of say, don't be offended by this. You know, think of it as something that's helpful. But it's also very, very Glinda because it's, it's kind of blunt and it's kind of thoughtless as much as it's also trying to be kind. And then I love the line, now that I've decided to become a pal, a sister, and advisor, because it's so absurd. They've gone from total enemies to Glinda not only being friendly, but these three things right away, right? She's, she's like, I've decided, which is not really how friendships are supposed to work, to become a pal, a sister, and advisor, right? It just gets bigger and bigger. And she's decided from zero to 60 here to become everything to Alphaba, a pal, a sister, an advisor, like all of these things that usually take years to earn, but she's decided it, right? So, and now she's going to be fully on team Alphaba. But again, this is something that does happen, especially in school, especially in girls' school. I don't know, maybe it happens to guys too. It certainly did happen for me. It's like, there are these big things that happen when you're a kid where it's like, okay, guess what? We're going to be best friends now. Now we're best friends. Okay. 
ask me if I have a best friend. I do. I just decided it's you, you know? So it feels very true to the, the childlike elements of Glinda, but also very true to the situation that they're in. Glinda does understand the situation that they're in. She understands how school works and she knows how to navigate it. Not when it comes to popular. I know I'm a popular. And with an assist from me to be who you'll be instead of dreary who you were, well, are. There's nothing that can stop you from becoming popular. Lar. also very Glinda, right? She does understand the school. She does understand her own power, right? And the song's sort of about her. But she's right. She's very, very good at being popular. You can't get a better friend. Like, if she can assist you to do this, it will happen. Because that's her power because she is popular, which is going to work into the next thing she says, right? That she has the power to make Elphaba popular because she is popular. So that's just teeing us up for this next section that we're about to hear. But of course, we get Glinda in a nutshell in this line too, with the line about instead of dreary who you were, well, are, you know, she's insulting Elphaba sort of thoughtlessly, but then she corrects her own pronunciation so that the rhyme works. You're going to be popular, lar. Glinda is a little bit of a mean girl, but what makes a mean girl truly villainous is their focused power and their real lack of self-awareness sometimes. They just are like sharks in the water, kind of driven just to take people down and nothing else. Glinda's different than this. She's an egomaniac for sure, but she's also a little bit daffy and a little bit self-deprecating. She can kind of admit when she's wrong, as we see in this little lyric correction, which is kind of funny. She's said the wrong thing or she said something the wrong way so that the rhyme doesn't work, so that she just immediately corrects it because it's it should be right, you know? It's kind of funny. It's a funny little moment and it makes her sort of lovable because she's she's not really afraid of looking sort of silly here in these moments. She's just going to fix it. And of course, that fact, the fact that she's able to be this person who can fix it and move along is what's going to define her later. She's wrong about a lot of things in this show, but she's always able to admit that. And if she couldn't change and she couldn't admit it, she would become a villain for sure. She would just basically be another uh, Madame Morrible, but she doesn't. And that's what makes her Glinda. So while she's also being an egomaniacal jerk in this song, she's also tremendously lovable. It's a really fine balance here. When I see depressing creatures with unprepossessing features, this is the part I was talking about before because I love this song for this particular moment and I think this particular moment is the heart of this entire song. Glinda is making a very good savvy point here. Before this we could think that Glinda's doing this because she herself thinks that popularity is just the most important thing to be in school and that's all she cares about and that's her value system and so of course why wouldn't you want to be popular it's the best thing you can be when you're in school but we've we've switched into something else here and the melody is is allowing for this right instead of kind of hopping around as she's done a little bit throughout the song she's basically staying at one note for these phrases while the music is supporting her with a little bit of that hopping around but 
she herself is just driving this point. And what she's saying is actually the most focused thing that she said so far, which is that popularity is not just something that you want to be, because why would you not want to be popular in school? She's saying that when you think of the great leaders in the world, that they're not necessarily smart or well-educated, but they're popular. So she's turning, in some ways, this whole song on its head. Because at the beginning, it's setting up the superficiality of popular, as if it's ultimately not that important, right? We saw that with that kind of, you will be popular. Like a little bit of contrast to the silliness of what it is to be popular with this like very sort of like, I will do this for you, this seriousness of her intention. But now she's making a point that goes beyond this. She's able to see the world larger than school. And what she's saying is correct, which is that if you are popular, then you actually have access to almost all of the power structures in the the way that the world works. So it's actually a very savvy, smart move to be popular. It's not just something you want to be because it's easier to function in school. You can't get anything done if you don't have this element, which is kind of what Glinda is saying. So Glinda has gone from someone that we think of as being, you know, the the dumb airhead who cares only about superficial things to actually someone who just sees how the world works and is working within it very effectively, which is something that Elphaba is not able to do, right? Elphaba does have a big heart. Elphaba does have a lot of brains. She is someone who's very knowledgeable, very intelligent, very worthy of being a leader, but she's desperately unpopular. And so what Glinda's offering her here is actually much bigger than just the chance to have some friends in school. What she's pointing out is that Alphaba is not going to be able to achieve any of her goals if she doesn't nail this popularity thing, or at least be able to function within it. Is it a little bit overblown? Sure, there's a lot of other things that can make you powerful, but is it wrong? Absolutely not. It's a very good point. And the music is really helping us there with that just single note, right? It wants us to hear this, and Glinda wants us to hear it too. It's not hopping around, it's not flouncy, it's not performative. She's just making a really good point, and it's pretty simply made. It's not about aptitude, it's the way you're viewed, so it's very shrewd to be very, very popular like me. And here she brings it back to herself, of course, because ultimately this is about Glinda. She is an egomaniac a little bit. She is someone who is a bit superficial. As much as she understands the value of popularity in the world and the power of popularity in the world, she's not entirely free from all of this herself, right? And so after making this very smart point about it's not about aptitude, it's the way you're viewed, which is a very wise thing. She's bringing it back because we can hear her celebration in the line about very, very popular like me, right? It's smart to be popular, of course. That's a good point. It's good to be very, very popular like her, right? She does enjoy it. So in this song, and then of course it goes on a little bit, there's a little bit of dialogue and then Glinda sings another little chunk of it, which I'm just going to leave out. But we don't really need it for this purpose because we've gotten everything we need from Glinda right here. In this song, as much as Stephen Schwartz claims that it's all bubblegum and it's all sort of about Clueless or Emma or these kind of superficial girls, which I think he's wrong about Emma too, uh, Jane Austen's Emma, which is what he cites as a reference. This is actually a song that tells us a great deal about Glinda. It gives us the seeds for what she's going to become, right? She is both the sort of nightmare person that she has been up until this point, who was mocking Elphaba and who, who was downright mean to Elphaba a few times. She definitely was 
the alpha mean girl to Alphaba. But here we've seen that, that that's not really who she is. She has that in her and she knows how to be popular and she does think it's important, but she also thinks it's important for reasons that are very, as she says, shrewd. They're good reasons. And what she's offering to Alphaba is more than just here, I'm going to give you the greatest gift I have, which is to be popular. It's about how she can operate within the world successfully. And we hear a little bit about what's going to happen with Glinda as well. You know, she's going to be able to manipulate this power in an interesting way, but it's also going to be what causes her pain because people will look at her and see this perfect world. And what she's going to realize is that as much as, yes, it's the way you're viewed, that's not entirely true because what's happening really within you is also the most important thing. So she's going to have to learn that there is more than just what people think of you and how it looks to the outside. But we're also going to care about that when it happens to her, right? We don't want her to be punished, really. But we do want her to, to gain the kind of depth that we know that Elphaba has. And it's really setting up half of their friendship really beautifully. Alphaba has what Glinda doesn't have. Glinda has what Alphaba doesn't have. Their path down the road of life is going to be very different, but they're going to need each other, as they say, to really fulfill the balance and allow each other to learn from each one of them and their strengths and weaknesses. So it's just a great song. It's just, just really fun. And I defy you not to think about that line about celebrated heads of states and great communicators and how popular they are. I mean, it comes up in my mind when I look at politics all the time, all the time. So in the middle of this show, given to the character who's ostensibly the, the biggest airhead or the most superficial of all, although of course that's not entirely true, is this very, very good point, which I love. It's just a, a moment of great depth where you go, yeah, you know what? She's right. And you're surprised that she has been so right when you were getting ready to just mock her in this song. So yay, I think it's great. I just love this song. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that impact Wicked. So first up, as could be talked about with any adaptation of a prior source, I wanted to get into the strength of adaptation or really just how different the musical Wicked is from its source material. I'll start and say that as a teenager, I started to read the Gregory Maguire novel and got about 50 pages into what I think is about a 500 page book and really couldn't go any further. I, it was dense and not interesting to me and I really couldn't get any further. But I also know a lot of fans of the original book who think that the musical is abhorrent. Gregory Maguire is not a part of that for the record. He's quite happy with the musical adaptation because he thinks it gets a general flavor that matches and it's still kind of tragic because they don't get to see each other even though in the original novel Alpha literally dies. Um, I'm also sure that if I were getting that royalty check every week I'd be quite happy with the adaptation. Uh, but Annika, let's go into some of the complexities that are at play with a very complex novel and a musical that essentially takes the premise of said novel and creates its own story out of it. Yeah, it's it's very, very different. I read the novel, I think, I can't quite remember if I read it before or after I saw the show, to be honest, but it has the honor of being my least favorite book that I have ever read. <laughs> I really don't like it. I find the original novel to be 
I, I mean, I have a I have a problem with bleak things, and it is a very very bleak book. Um, the characters you love probably die in horrible ways. There's just it's just kind of cynical and dark in a way that I don't like, and it feels very pretentious to me. It feels like it's full of moments where it's like, oh, you thought this was going to be like the Wizard of Oz, but it's not. It's dark. And it's big. And so personally, just speaking personally, I know many people do really love that book. I think it was a very, very wise choice to move away from that tone. And I know it's a hard choice because often when you, when the seed of why you want to do something is because you love the source material, it's very difficult sometimes to choose to say, well, we love that, but we're going to go in a completely other direction. But Gregory Maguire, um, as you said, is is very okay with it. Because he, what he says, too, is that he just took The Wizard of Oz as a sort of jumping off point for his own imagination, as the writers of Wicked took his book as a jumping off point for their imagination. So they kind of did the same thing. So it's it's really a different thing. But, oh, man, do I hate that book. Sorry, people who love that book. No, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, as a teenager who liked the musical and thought that subsequently I was going to read a book that was just a bigger version of the story uh, and it was not the case I had a really hard time you know getting into it so as much as it might help Gregory Maguire's book sales at the end of the day uh, is that actually a good thing in the long term I don't know I mean that's a, a conversation of semantics really I guess but it certainly you know it, it's just interesting that it, it you take a premise that is centrally uh compelling and make something totally different out of it which yeah definitely in keeping with what he did originally like you said so yeah and uh, i do and i do understand why if you love that book why you would be horrified by the show because you would be expecting all that same kind of darkness and cynicism and brutality at times and the kind of sense that the world in general is not fair it's very much not a happy ending um Elphaba does get killed by the bucket of water it's it's just you know fiero is murdered by assassins i mean it's it's pretty across the board dark. So if I was expecting that and I came to see the show Wicked, I think I can understand why you would be disappointed, but. Well, and it's a fair point too, because the book is way more political than the musical is. But when you take into account what we all expect a prequel of The Wizard of Oz to look like based on our knowledge of the movie, there are a lot of things that you can't address because the movie isn't in the public domain like the original novel is. So there are interesting ways that Wicked gets around some of the assumed parts of what we think we're going to see, even if it is different from the novel Wicked or the original novel or the movie that we all know. Yeah, and actually, I think that that is one of the secrets to this show's success, ultimately, because the show is very clever about making you as an audience member feel in the know and or ahead of it. You know, the references that they drop to The Wizard of Oz are so nicely laid in that you you can always kind of have a moment of oh my god wait that's the tin man or oh my god the wait that's the cowardly lion and i cannot state this baldly enough but for my entire career working in theater there is nothing that audiences like more than feeling smart they hate feeling out of the loop they don't like feeling behind the eight ball and if you can make them feel like they are getting something a, a tiny bit ahead of your story, they will love it. And that is something that Wicked does really brilliantly. They they can get those references, they can understand the characters and where they come from, and they can connect it in their head, and then they feel like they have been let into the story in a really in a really smart way. It's so brilliantly handled. And what you talked about in terms of the original version of it, 
when the when they first did the reading of it and there were all all of the Dorothy, you know, Tin Man Toto characters just came out in the front and Joe Mantello was very against that, which I think was so smart because there's so much more power in letting those characters come through in in unexpected ways and really have their moment where you you don't even remember that we're dealing with that story and then you're like oh my god that's right this is what this is you know and you get the backstory of the tin man and the backstory of the scarecrow and all of this sort of like the real story but it it makes you feel so smart and in the know and that's just a very very powerful tool to have an audience love a piece absolutely and it's a great transition to the political parts of wicked the musical and it really doesn't spend a ton of time in the politics that end up fueling Alphaba's, uh, shall we say, counterculture existence, uh, which I do think is one of those choices that it makes the audience feel smart. We don't, you know, for the audience's sake, we don't need a ton of justification for why she does what she does, because we've seen her take the journey and we know where her morals are and the overriding reasons that she does some things. But I think it's also a fair critique that, that the political element of Animals Not Talking is a little shoehorned into the show. And I, I mean, I happen to think that it is just the right amount. Um, but Annika, how do you feel about it? Yeah, this is this is one of the problems that I have with the show. I, I don't think this ultimately really works. I mean, I think they get away with it. And I know that this was something that they worked on a lot throughout the run of the show, trying to find the balance of how much of the, the animal subplot was present because they needed enough that it was a motivating factor for Elphaba, but not so much that it kind of hijacked the whole plot of the show. And you also run into potentially like goofy issues where it's, you know, a man, half man, half goat is just kind of sort of a silly thing to see on stage. So making, making a really earnest plot line about how this half man, half goat is being persecuted against can, can very easily dip into something that seems sort of absurd. Um, but I, I just don't ultimately, I think they set it up and I think they've kind of used it as a launching point for Elphaba. But I, I feel like as an audience member, I kind of forget about it. I sort of don't totally track what Elphaba is doing. I think once once she's flying at the end of the first act and once she's been declared a villain, it kind of completely goes by the wayside because then it's mostly about her reputation and her trying to, to just be survive basically in this in this world so um i think i would have preferred it if it was something that we felt really strongly about ourselves or understood a little bit more from from the beginning with her that this was something that she felt very strongly about um and or something that they didn't kind of also undercut because i do find that in that moment when they introduced the cowardly lion and Bach, as the Tin Man says, you know, I have this beef with her because because he thinks that she did this to him as a sort of uh, punishment or a punitive act, which of course is not true. But and then the Cowardly Lion is brought out, who is the original animal that she saved from from being in a cage. And Bach says, you know, if if she had let him fight his own battle, then he wouldn't be a Cowardly Lion. And that's the kind of line that's very dangerous in a show because, on the one hand. It's very effective because of what I said before, you know, that you've introduced the Cowardly Lion, you've completed his arc in a kind of interesting way, and you're you're showing how very wrong this is going, that people are misunderstanding Elphaba's intention. But it also indicates that even the animals that she's helping don't want her help, which kind of makes 
her sacrifice for their cause feel unimportant. So anyway, there's there's elements here that I, I think personally are not quite in the right balance yet. Although I think what does happen is that ultimately it doesn't super matter because you don't really care about this plot anyway. You just care about Elphaba and Glinda and Elphaba trying to escape and find Fiero so that you're, you're happy to kind of let it leave your head and not take over, which is both a problem and not a problem because it doesn't bother audiences that it doesn't really ever really get resolved because they're just like, whatever, get back to the plot we care about. So... Yeah, I kind of, I think the critique about Act 2 is super fair, that it really disappears and uh, and we, we lose that that is the core of why she has taken the action she's taken. It really starts to inflate to more of a, an anti-this administration, anti-this regime, and the lack of truth and honesty and transparency within it. But I also think that the stuff with the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man is interesting because it does fuel back to the perception argument and the perception idea that I think does go throughout the whole piece that actions can be perceived differently by different people, even if they were well-intentioned, which is the whole no good deed goes unpunished idea, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's actually pretty well done the way they layer it in that it doesn't oh become overly political. I think it would probably end up turning some people off of Elphaba, which is a whole other sad kind of reality of uh, the way art is viewed. And if it's being made for a mass culture, we tend to water things like that down because we don't want things to come across political. That's a whole other discussion for a whole another time. But I actually, as I was revisiting it, I was really surprised with how well and how you know they don't go to a ton of depth it is definitely not really why they're telling this story or what interests them in the story i think uh, is fair to level at it but i was actually i was surprised at how how much i bought it or it, maybe that's just my own rose colored glasses with the show and i'll admit my my fangirlness of it but I, but all that is to say i think it's an interesting thing to discuss and we're just going to differ on it, but I think it's, it's because I think the act two stuff is super fair. It, dro it drops away. We don't talk about it at all. It becomes much more about the idea of the wizard and the Emerald City and the lack of transparency more than it is about animal rights. Well, but I also feel like I'm missing one, one step larger macro point of view of why why are people trying to silence animals in terms of the the wizard you know like then the wizard wants her to turn the monkeys into flying monkeys which we then find out is because he wants them to be able to spy which is a sort of like evil government act but i'm kind of missing the 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 larger overall like they are trying to silence the animals because you know insert reason here animals pose a threat to his regime or animals you know there's like there's a little bit mi that i'm missing i feel like they they kind of have it a bunch of ways where it's like Elphaba doesn't want the animals to be silenced because she has a heart and cares about dr dillamond and that we see that he's a smart interesting person and he's this is horrible but then he she also doesn't want animals to be in cages which we can understand as a sort of that's something that we experience in our world too but then also the wizard is being cruel to the animals to use them for his own purpose. You know, it's like, there's a lot of different things where I'm like, I, I need, I need to just like, okay, tell me what the plan is with the animals and also what she can do for them because she can't, she can't save the monkeys. She can't stop the animals from becoming voiceless. But then we kind of get the hint that they're getting 
their voices back at the end, but but it's unclear why. You know, it's there's just I need a little bit more clarification on that whole thing in order to feel comfortable about what the goal is on a few different levels with that particular That's fair. Plot. That's fair. I buy that. I buy that. Um because there really is not they kind of rest on the parallel the silencing of annals to other hate group movements of of prior of the past. Yeah. Really is kind of rely on that right. a little bit. So that's fair. And the last thing I think is interesting to talk about with Wicked is the creative team stumbled into the fact that this became a show that really appealed to young women and women in general because of the female friendship at the center of it. And I think that's something that as we live in society and start to talk about the works of art that we put forward are, is something that's consistently underestimated. And I think this is a great example of something that takes that and really uh, kind of says, uh, no, that's not the case. We can make this our strength and make this something that uh, is empowering for women and, uh, but also palatable for men. There's certainly no reason this is not like a woman's show, quote unquote, in the way that only women go to see Wicked. Um, so uh, I don't know, let's talk about it a little bit. Is that a fair way to set this up, Annika? Like what, you know, yeah. you've got a fair way to describe the show. Is it smart marketing? You know, what is that? Yeah, it's interesting. I remember in grad school, um, we had a class where we talked about marketing for the theater and somebody said that, you know, when the show was, was first being made, they weren't sure if it was going to be a hit, which was true. I remember the buzz being sort of like questionable out, out of town. And, and this person went to see the show and she saw that there were these teenage girls there who turned to each other, or I think it was a teenage girl and her mom, something like that. But the girl turned to her mom and said, see, I told you. And she thought, oh, you know what? This is art. This show is going to be just fine. And it just annoys me that this is a consistently underappreciated draw. I mean, I, it happened with Frozen, the movie, as well, when that movie was first, before it came out, and they did this poster that was like the you know, the snowman and the two men, and the women were sort of in the background of it because they were afraid that nobody would want to see a movie about two women. And obviously that's proven to be entirely not true. And it just, it's such a potent time in a woman's life in anybody's life when you're a kid when you're in school and these friendships that you make that are very intense or you know as in frozen the relationship between sisters like this is a human relationship that is full of drama and full of meaning and full of humor and full of ridiculousness it's just it's something that people want to see just as all humans want to see themselves represented on stage and it just drives me crazy that there's always this sense of like oh no we can't make it about women's friendships because then it's going to be just a woman's thing but it, it just is it well, bothers me yeah and particularly in the case of a broadway musical where women make up such a yeah of our dedicated and consistent audience that we continue to underestimate the power that they have and the draw that it could be, can be, and the success that it could be. It's interesting that we have so many examples and yet we continue to discount them. Yeah, so, and I think it's also really a credit to Winnie Holtzman, who's the book writer of this show, who did a really beautiful job with that friendship, which is very complex and full of exactly the kind of ups and downs that a lot of those early friendships have. So while I do think that there's a lot in this show that really isn't subtle, I do think that that friendship is beautifully drawn 
and beautifully complex. And I, I don't know if a male book writer would have been able to get some of the complexity that's in that friendship. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so at yeah. all. Yeah. And that brings us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we share some of our favorite things. So we're gonna be a little different with this segment this week as we continue to grow and refine the show. We've got some categories of favorite things that we're gonna loop into this. So Annika, why don't you share your favorite character in Wicked? I think I've got to give it to, I mean, I don't want to be a broken record, but I really love Glinda as a character. Galinda, if you will. Um, because I think that it's a, it's a spin on something that is a, always an interesting trope, which is the kind of dumb blonde or the popular girl who turns out to be a lot more interesting than that. But it doesn't really want to be about that in the same way that something like Legally Blonde is about the very same idea. And, and the whole show is kind of about her realizing that she's not a dumb blonde, really. But there's something kind of that always breaks my heart about Glinda. She goes from being the sort of queen of the world, beautiful, popular, rich girl who's privileged and, and every, everyone says yes to her all the time and she's the queen of the social scene. But at the end of the show, she's the one that you're kind of like, ooh, that, I don't know if she's going to have a happy life. You know, I mean, her best friend she thinks is dead and she can't, she can't openly mourn for this person or, or talk about who she really was. Uh, the person that she thought she was going to marry has left her and she thinks he's dead also. Um, she doesn't really have any friends and or... Um, any of the valuable things that the other characters kind of have. She has the love of the populace, but we don't really like that populace too much. They have not proven themselves to be great. I mean, they've been totally happy to just be sort of a mob. And she's working for the government, which in this place is problematic. I mean, I think we get the sense that she's going to be able to get some stuff done, but um, it's kind of an interesting portrait of someone who is really grown and learned a lot about herself and become a very complex uh, character in terms of appreciating um, what is really important and what really matters. And she's always been shrewder than we think she is, as we saw in the popular thing. But um, she comes down in a really interesting place. So I don't know. that That's a character that always kind of stays with me as being a really interesting, complex character. And interesting portrait of a politician too i mean i was gonna say it if you didn't because glenn is my favorite but i have to shout out alphaba because alphaba is like there are a few things that i love to do more than go to a performance of wicked and start the applause break whenever alphaba runs downstage on her first entrance <laughs> love to do it love to i love to start an applause break and that's an easy one um but i mean to take one of the most iconic villains of all time and completely turn them on their head and create this lovable, interesting, dynamic character who we can all identify with is yeah. a real achievement. And I'm not taking away from the brilliance of Glinda because I adore Glinda, uh, but that really is part of the reason I think Wicked has its enduring appeal is because Elphaba is pretty amazing. I mean. But it's it's a pretty amazing role uh, and character. So I that's I, I, because you did Glinda. I'm gonna do Alphaba. But I suspect it would have been the uh, if I had started, it would have just been the reverse. Vice versa would have happened. 
totally. And I could have I could have taken on Elphaba because I totally agree. Okay, so Annika, what's your favorite scene or song in Wicked? Okay, so I'm not going to do popular because I did popular for the song analysis. You know what? I'll do something that isn't Defying Gravity either, even though that also is, because I don't want to do just the greatest hits, but I really have a soft spot for dancing through life. It's super fun. I, you know, those are my top three from the show. Yeah, it, it's just really fun. And it, it just captures that kind of joy and coolness of Fiero. And I, I just... I always like listening to that one. So I'll, I'll say that one, even though uh, with strong shout outs to popular and defying gravity. I love the, uh, I love the like last 30 seconds of dancing through life where like Bach does it, which is not the way it happens in the show, but Bach, but on the cast recording when Bach is like, let's dance. And Nessa Rose is like, what? And he's like, let's dance. And it becomes like this like beautiful production number. I love it. I'm a sucker for that. Yeah. Um, I think, I'm gonna go ahead and do a favorite scene because I love the whole score and it's hard to pick a favorite. But I do love the last scene of the show. And I mean the last scene, I'm not talking about for good. I'm talking about the way that the shadow of her melting is staged to uh, Chistri giving her the grimmery and then her going back and learning about the elixir and the reveal and the callback to when she's sending Madame Marvel to prison and. I, you know, the callback to the original line that Madame Morrible gives Glinda, I love that. And the guards and the flipping, or I love a good big skirt flip, uh, up to then going into the bubble and having to present the public face that she knows Oz needs. It, like it checks so many boxes of things that I love. And then of course the great surprise reveal that Elphaba is still alive and Fiero, their plan worked, but then like I, I, it checks the box of so many things that I that I love. So that that is, I'm gonna say that's my favorite scene. That's a good one. And I love so much of the score. It's like hard to pick a favorite because I love so much of it. Yeah. Although I am gonna keep this in the podcast, I will stand by the fact that I love the song "Wonderful" and that is an unpopular opinion, but I love that number. <laughs> I. I think that number is stupid and I disagree with you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. So what's your last favorite thing? You can pick whatever you want. What's your last favorite thing about Wicked? I really have to give it to the costumes. Uh, Susan Hilferty is the costume designer and I think she did such a beautiful job. I mean, it, it's a beautiful physical production, this show, but I think the costumes especially are both recognizably the world of Oz and something entirely new and kind of skewed and different. I think she referred to it as like Twisted Edwardian, but it's such a good visual establishing of who all those characters are. And if you look at them close up, they're also just extraordinarily beautiful um, and exquisitely made down to the details. I just love them every single time. And you know what? Now it's been 17 years later and those costumes still look like the perfect choices. There's none of them that look kind of out of date now. So my favorite random thing about Wicked is the contingency plan for Defying Gravity, which if you don't know, so at the very end, you know, when she goes up and flies, she goes into a mechanism best known as a cherry picker, which is a version of what you see when you're driving on the road and there are guys fixing power lines or whatever, and they've got a little basket and it's made for a person and they're up and they're fixing the, the wires or whatever or picking cherries as was, you know, its namesake. Um, but if the cherry picker doesn't like close and make her safe, 
um, there's a little button and if it doesn't like close properly, the contingency plan for the end of defying gravity is that Alphaba is supposed to walk all the way down stage center, continue singing the song as the ensemble floods in and sings the look at her, she's wicked, get her. And then they are supposed to continue to get lower to the ground and put themselves as close to the ground as possible while singing the end of the song, then they're thereby elevating her because she did not go up in the cherry picker. Um, I'm obsessed with how low rent that is. I'm I've, I've only seen it in bootleg form. I've never been to a performance where that's happened, but apparently it happens a lot more frequently than you would think considering that is one of the big moments of the show that is so famous, that the show is so famous for. Um, I had at one point someone that I was friends with who worked on, who worked in the production said that about one out of every hundred performances, the cherry picker does not work. Um, and some people will quote it as more, some will quote it as less, but one out of every hundred, when you think about it in terms of Broadway, you're doing eight shows a week. That means that like once every two-ish months, um, the cherry picker doesn't work, uh, which is kind of remarkable. So I, I, I just love that little fun fact that if you're not like super, if you don't know a ton about the show, you don't know that, but it's kind of Broadway lore. Some of the Broadway lore stories about Wicked are really, really great. So that's my, that is one of my favorite things about Wicked. That's a great one. And I'm going to go ahead and give an asterisk just to say, and I did this for Spring Awakening too, is that I just love the show. It means a lot to me in terms of being a gateway musical and how much it appealed to me, the friendships that I made because of it. And I love it. I love it for that reason. I love that it gets so many new people into the door of the musical. And I love that when I tell people that I work in theater, they go, oh, have you seen Wicked? And I'm like, yeah, I have actually, like more than any other show that ever, <laughs> like I've seen that same production a lot. And actually fun fact, I have never paid to see Wicked. Wow. And I have seen it more than any other show. I have never personally paid to see Wicked. I don't know how you manage that because they do not give out freebies to that show. Uh, it's either because someone else had tickets or I got them or as a gift or I got comped or whatever. I have seen Wicked more times than I've seen any other. Uh, maybe actually, I think it's, I actually maybe saw Fun Home more, but I w was distantly involved. So that doesn't really count. Um, but I've seen that production of Wicked in various places, whatever, more than anything else. And I've never paid. And now it's like, a uh, source of pride, and so I never want to pay to see Wicked. <laughs> Just like it's, I never paid to do it. <laughs> I think I think they'll be okay without your money for the time. <laughs> and that brings us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Special shout out to Stephen Schwartz, who also composed Pippin that song is from in case you didn't know uh i'd be shocked if you're listening to this podcast and didn't know that but that might be true and if so we welcome you we're so happy you're here uh so annika what is wicked's corner of the sky oh it's a big flying corner isn't it i think you know it was sort of in some ways the return of the mega musical it was the first big hit of the 21st century as you pointed out earlier but i think it was also 
I think it showed the world that it was time for two badass leading ladies to duke it out. <laughs> I, I mean, that, I, I kind of feel like that's going to be its legacy ultimately is that it's, it's about women and that's great and people want to see it. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a huge phenomenon, continues to be, has been seen all over the world in tons of different languages. Um, and I'm curious when the movie comes out to see how that does in terms of continuing its legacy because I feel like there's so much potential in a movie version of it. And it's hard to say it's corner of the sky because it's still carving out its corner. of um, It's it, in its mega hitness and the sensation that it is. But it has brought so many people into theater that might not have walked through those doors in the first place anyway. And as much as we talk about it with a lot of the other shows that we've that we've mentioned, Wicked really has done a ton to continue to keep the Broadway musical in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, that before Hamilton, I think probably the most famous, I mean, Book of Mormon, I guess, was really transcended into popular culture, but Wicked was kind of cinema was kind of synonymous with what Broadway was for quite a while. And that is no small achievement when you're running against shows like Phantom and Book of Mormon and the mega musicals based on movies, Mamma Mia, the things that have continued to run on Broadway and be successful. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's another indication that spectacle is welcome you know it's a gorgeous big physical production with sumptuous costumes and a lot of sets and that was a little bit out of favor for a while there and um something that a lot of the other mega hits don't really have in the same way i mean rent wasn't really a sumptuous production you know book of mormon isn't really about that either hamilton is a beautiful production but not quite the same like feast for the eyes in the way that wicked is you know, so I think it's kind of a return to that sort of old school putting on a big show. Absolutely. I mean, the spectacle is why it continues to tour well and people love it. And it's part of the charm of it, right? Which is also a callback to what so many people love about The Wizard of Oz. That is this feast for the eyes. And, but also has a great story that it, and, and great music that, that communicates to everyone. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Wicked. Uh, it's been a pleasure to revisit the show. I am fond of saying that I revisit the show probably one day a year, and it's always a great day. And this was certainly a great day to revisit Wicked with you, Annika. Did you say it was one short day in the Emerald City? Boo, I set that up for you way too easily. <laughs> I was able to just knock that one right out. <laughs> so Annika, what are we going to put in the spotlight next episode? The next episode, we are taking a look at Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Who are you? I don't remember the lyric. Hosanna, hey, Zanna, 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 ho. Okay. <laughs> I have to stop the sing along there. I just, oh God. But it'll be fun. It'll be great. We'll have heaven on our minds. Excellent. <laughs> ba -ba 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 -ba. Wow. Everything will be all right. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how to love him. <laughs> okay. Before we completely lose our minds, we'll take it. We'll sign off from there. Bye, everyone. See you next time. Bye, everyone. And especially Julia Murney. Dedicated listener to the pod. Yep. Friend of, friend of the program. Friend Julia. of the program. Alphabet extraordinaire.
Broadway's Julia Murney. Broadway's Julia Murney. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!